0: Hi everybody, I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club where we bring together the biggest names in tech to talk about the big issues. And today we're talking about the future of knowledge. What's gonna happen to Quora now that Yahoo Answers has shut down, the long-standing knowledge base no longer there. Uh, but Quora, this incredible Q&A site with 300 million users has survived it. And now it's evolving, embracing creators with a new monetization program and trying to find new ways for people to be volunteers in building the world's knowledge base. And we're here to today with Adam D'Angelo, the founder and CEO of Cora, to talk about what happens next for Knowledge. Adam, thank you so much for joining us here on Press Club.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to just get a quick reaction to you. What was it like when you heard that Yahoo Answers, Quora's longstanding competitor, was shutting down?
1: We never really have thought too much about Yahoo Answers since since maybe the very early days. Um, I feel
0: like nobody really thought too much about it except for like, it's just this endless well of humor because of all the like ridiculously poorly spelled answers and just like blatant misinformation. But, but yeah, you, so you guys didn't really even think about it too much? It's actually interesting. I,
1: for, I talked to
0: some people who
1: had worked on Yahoo Answers when we were first starting Quora and one of the things I learned was that in the the very early days, you know, maybe like the first year of Yahoo Answers existence, it had some really high quality content getting shared, but over time they just didn't have systems that could scale and the quality went downhill super, super fast. And so, you know, we 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 took a lot of lessons from that and how we built Quora early on to focus on personalization and showing people the questions that they would be better at answering than anybody else and showing people the answers that that they would read. But, you know, I think after a few years in, it was pretty clear to us that the Yahoo Answers wasn't going to be very relevant to us. And so, you know, we, we saw it shut down. It was like, oh, you know, I, I guess that's that's finally the end of that. But, but we didn't see it as like an active uh, competitor or or a product we felt like we were competing against.
0: I mean, I'll always be a little bit sad because I think this is my favorite YouTube video in the whole world, this Am I Pregnant from JT Sex Kit. If you guys haven't heard this, you gotta check this out. Am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? Am I pegnate? Help, is there a possibility that I'm Pregnant. Hey, am I pregnant or am I okay? Could I be pregonate? How do I know if I'm pregnant? Can I be pregnant? These are just all terrible misspellings of can I can you get pregnant? Am I pregnat on Yahoo Answers? It's just if you haven't looked, you should look up that video if you haven't seen it before. But so what you said was that you know, Yahoo answers started pretty high quality, but all of a sudden things kind of went downhill. And Chorus managed to really keep the quality high, despite scaling the community from what was a, at first kind of a private. Almost exclusive thing to over 300 million users a month now. Can you just tell me a little bit about like the origin story of Quora and then how you kept it from devolving into this sort of morass of of misinformation? From the very beginning, we always thought
1: that there was a huge amount of knowledge that was not available on on the internet, and so this was back in 2009. I remember looking around the the different places where people could share knowledge online and There were forums and there were some of these bigger services like answers.com and and yahoo answers and there was a kind of decentralized blogging world and and there was a lot of knowledge getting shared but i just thought it wasn't anywhere near the potential and and I, i thought it wasn't anywhere near the amount of knowledge that was out there in the world and i think we had a kind of unique perspective because when we talked to investors at the beginning and told them about our idea a lot of them would look at yahoo answers and and some of these other services and they would kind of conclude that there wasn't really much potential I, I think a lot of the thinking was on the lines of like if you build a service that lets everyone in the world contribute to it then you're fundamentally just going to end up with a lot of garbage and and it's going to be it's going to go downhill and it's it's going to be bad and we looked at that world. And, and we said, actually, we think that the issue is not, the problem is not letting everyone in the world contribute. The problem is the, the incentives and the, the systems that are kind of governing how the different knowledge that different people are sharing gets distributed and what gets rewarded on these platforms. And so we thought that we could come along and, and if we structured the incentives a little bit better and we managed it and focused on quality, we thought that we would be able to scale and, and and get bigger in a way that didn't make the experience get worse for everyone as it was getting bigger.
0: Yeah, how did you think about those incentives like what makes people want to contribute on Quora? Because I think of Quora and Wikipedia as these two pillars of knowledge on the internet. Wikipedia is kind of the objective, you know, probably like everybody's take combined into one, and Quora, this amazing Q&A site is for subjective knowledge where you ask a question and you get all these amazing different answers, people upvote and downvote the different answers so you can find the best ones, and it's sort of the subjective side of knowledge whereas Wikipedia is the objective side, but both of them are largely powered by these volunteers, people who just put content in there because they want it to exist in the world. They want to share it. How do you keep those people happy, you know, both historically, and then a little bit later, we'll get into how that's evolved now and what you guys are doing with creators you know, what makes somebody want to contribute knowledge to the internet and how do you make them feel rewarded?
1: You know, different people are motivated by different things, but I think a lot of people are just Intrinsically motivated to to share what they've learned with the world, and it's something that um, you know they they'll enjoy doing themselves. They they feel maybe like they spent a long time in their life trying to solve a problem, and they want to make sure that other people who have that problem in the future don't have to go through such a difficult process that they went through. People feel like they want to give back to society in some way. Other people maybe they want to build their reputation. We have a lot of people we hear about stories about people getting jobs or making friends through um, knowledge they've shared on Quora. And I guess I'd say a a very specific thing that's motivating to people is is seeing a question that they feel like they can uniquely answer. One of our strengths you know, relative to, let's say, a lot of people who will share their knowledge on a a blogging product, a lot of the time they don't know what to write about. And they they have a lot of different um, knowledge in their head, a lot of experiences they've had over the course of their life. But they need some kind of prompt. They need some stimulation to help them figure out what they want to write about. And the questions that that we show people um, and and our machine learning that's underneath that that helps predict what what a given person is going to be good at answering, that's a big feature for for people and it ends up being very motivating as well.
0: And so how do you think about getting them the distribution that they need? Because I think of that as being one of the hardest problems for a lot of these services is that, yeah, you can offer people c- creation tools, but unless they really feel seen, like they feel like they're they're actually contributing or somebody's benefiting from the content, it gets boring pretty quickly. You feel like you're kind of just talking into the ether. You're talking into a black hole. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Like, what? how do you guys arrange that so that people see the stuff that actually matters? And how do you keep that from becoming kind of because I think sometimes the problem with these kind of knowledge bases is it almost feels like work. It almost feels like school. But, you know, when when done best, I feel like I'm learning amazing things. And so there are some hilariously wonderful things on Quora. Certainly, like, answers to all of your medical questions with a lot better answers than probably WebMD. But also things like, could somebody actually become Batman? Or, you know, these tales of what people, what, it, what it's like to actually go to prison from people who are on death row. These incredible stories. So maybe you can tell us, like, how do you keep Quora? A uh, balance between being informative, but also being fun, so people want to come back?
1: Yeah, so we focus heavily on personalization, and, and we're different from many other platforms because we don't focus a lot on the follow graph. So you as a creator can come onto Quora, and if you write a great answer, um, you tell a great story, we'll try to go and figure out who are all the people on Quora who might want to read that. Um, regardless of whether they know who you are or whether they're they're following you and in practice with this focus on personalization we end up with a pretty good balance between kind of informative content and more like interesting or curiosity or like entertaining content i think that's because there's a lot of diversity out there in our user base in terms of what these different people are interested in and I think it naturally works out to the balance that's right for people. so for for certain users, we'll actually will show a lot of like entertaining, kind of humorous, interesting, intellectually curious content. For other people, it'll be like serious answers about math and and physics. And we have this machine learning technology that we were you know we're constantly adapting to try to show people what they really want to see. and over time, that has uh, that that's you know as as we've tuned it and evolved it, it tries to get the right balance between the different types of content.
0: Is there a way that you can tell, like, if somebody cares about that, like, that comedy versus like pur- pure information, and like, is that something that changes over time? Because I know there's, there's this. I have always have this concept of content being divided into a few different buckets. There's like the actual interest content, which is the stuff that we it, it really aligns with our hobbies, our passions, uh, and we want to follow, to consume it. But sometimes it's actually kind of exhausting, and it almost does feel like a chore. Then there's the aspirational content. It's the kind of like we wish that we really uh, that we we w- would consume all the time. But yeah, it's even more difficult. It's like it actually takes real energy whereas the passion stuff is kind of more fun. And then there's like the uh, the impulse content, which is something that like you maybe weren't really looking for, but it, it just sort of like grabs your attention and it hits that curiosity gap and you refuse to let it go by. I think of this very acutely when it comes to TikTok. There's like the videos that actually match my interests the videos that I wish matched my interests that I wish the interest I wish I had and then the things that are just like, you know, morbid, like drive this morbid curiosity. And how do you think about dividing Cora into those different pieces uh, and helping people to both like fulfill their actual passions, but also maybe even drive them to their higher aspirations of what they wish they were learning about?
1: It's a very interesting topic to, to try to categorize types of, of content. In practice, in our case, we, we have these machine learning systems. And, and one of the things that they will do is, is try to map content onto a set of dimensions. And so in some cases we might use a hundred or 200 different dimensions. And actually for each answer, we'll go and find a point in space in this, hun- along these hundred dimensions or 200 dimensions. And we'll, we'll use that to represent it. And you can think about like which other answers or what, what other content is similar to this and what kind of people tend to like the, the other content near this. They'll probably also like this content, but it's very hard to put labels on on what these different dimensions actually are. I mean, I think, I think you did a good job, but in practice, what we're doing is more about looking at patterns and, and, and recognizing things like, Hey, the other people who liked this stuff also really liked this answer. Um, and we know that you like that same kind of stuff. And so you'll probably really like this. In most cases, we don't actually know, whether the content is is specifically like informative versus funny versus uh any other different categories that that you laid out
0: are there any topics that you've been personally super surprised at how interested people are in? Like, is there something that like, you wouldn't, you don't, this doesn't normally normally come up in conversation, but it's like massively popular on Quora. You know, what are those weird little like, niches or areas that people truly love to learn about, even if there's maybe no practical use for them?
1: There's a lot, and I, I'm con- I'd say constantly surprised. There's one category I, I think is interesting is questions about encounters with the police. So just, you know, advice on what to do when the police pull you over, how to deal with a situation, should you call the police or not, what it's like to be a police officer, everything around that is this category that for some reason the media doesn't generally cover. Like the media will cover stories about specific things that happened with the police. But on CORE, we have a lot of content, a lot of content written by police officers about exactly how... police function. You know, I I think it's interesting, but it's also, it's interesting to me that there's so much demand for that from people.
0: So I want to hear a little bit more about your own origin story in tech because you were actually once named the runner-up for the smartest person in tech uh, by Fortune magazine. You you know were early at, uh, at Facebook. You helped with uh, your investor in Instagram before the acquisition. Uh, you built Cora and, and you know you've you've built these knowledge bases and these ways that people connect across the internet. And so we just love to find out like how did you get so deep into uh, computer science and the science of connecting people socially. Uh, And would love to hear a little bit also about how you ended up working with Mark Zuckerberg on his pre-Facebook project.
1: So I started, I guess, when I was in middle school originally. One of my friends, his older brother, showed us how to program in QBasic. And I started making some games just for fun by myself. And I, I spent a lot of time in middle school and high school just programming games. At one point, I came across this programming contest and i entered over this was the early days of the internet i entered it and did well enough to get to to kind of like the next round and got into this community of other people who were were doing programming contests and and that really in retrospect built my programming skills then later i i uh i went to college and when i was in college i i created this this is before social networks. I created this web service where you could go and upload your buddy list, which was it was, it was at the time, a lot of the people in, in my cohort used AOL instant messenger and I made this service where you could upload your buddy list and you can kind of like browse other people's buddy lists, which was something that the AOL instant messenger didn't support. And I just, I thought that whole thing was fascinating and there was just so much potential. I remember when I had made these games, myself, I would put them up on, on some websites and it might get like 50 downloads or 200 downloads. And then I made this, uh, the service where you could share your buddy list. And in a week, it got like 200,000 people all, all signed up for it. Um, and that really just kind of like showed me the, the power and the potential of, of the internet. And then later I had known Mark Zuckerberg before college. And then after he started Facebook, he pulled me in and I started first started giving some advice and then later joined as first as an engineer and then led some projects and, and eventually ran the engineering team at, at Facebook for about a year. But yeah, that, that was my path. I mean, I, I think I've always been really excited about technology in the first place, but the internet in particular and just the way that it unlocks so much potential for people to communicate and to share with each other.
0: You are adorably modest. Weren't you the first chief technology officer of Facebook? And maybe you could just tell us like a little bit about what it was like trying to build this kind of new future of social networking at the time when it was such a green field. Now we think of social as being so crowded, so many new apps, so many big platforms kind of steamrolling them. But what was it like in the early days building in such an unknown space, especially without the benefit of some of these knowledge bases that we kind of take for granted now, things like Quora?
1: it It was really exciting. I guess at one point, they decided to to give me the CTO title. but I, you know I started out just uh, working on whatever needed to be done. And one of the big challenges back then was that you didn't you didn't know how to solve most of the problems. And so the internet just didn't have very much on it, and there was a lot of trial and error. you know I ended up using a lot of skills I had developed in these programming contests in making Facebook's code run faster and in solving other problems that came up. One of the things I worked on there was the the first version of Newsfeed. And I remember just imagining like what it would be like if you take all this information that people were sharing on Facebook, it was shared on their profiles at the time and aggregate it into a feed. And it was actually a really difficult problem computationally at the time. Just given the infrastructure that was out, there wasn't very good open source software. There was nothing like Amazon Web Services or the other cloud services today. And so engineering was a big, big constraint on being able to do any of that. But it was a lot of fun. I, I learned a ton really, really quickly from all that experience. And I've always been excited to to be able to apply that. A lot of what I've learned there. To Quora today.
0: So a lot of people don't really know the story of uh, of Synapse, the the media player and music suggestion software that you worked on with with Zuck before Facebook. Can you just tell us a little bit about like that story? Like, how did that happen? Uh, sure.
1: Yeah. So we worked on it was, it was basically a, a music player that could suggest you songs to play. That was like the big differentiation between the other other products out there, like Winamp at the time. So, so we we worked on that for a while. I've worked on a lot of projects and and I think he worked on a lot of projects too. But it, it was it was fun to work on. The part that I worked on was the basically it, it, I would not call it machine learning, but it was the equivalent of machine learning to to try to figure out what, what would be a good song for you to to play next out of all the the music in, in your library. He worked on the kind of UI for the the product and and I worked on the the back end that did the Suggestions. You can think of it kind of like Spotify today. If you get to the end of a playlist that you're playing, Spotify will automatically just play more songs. So it was a feature kind of like that, and it was it was exciting. I think over my past, I've worked on a lot of these different projects, mostly just to kind of like to to throw away or just for fun. And and I felt like I, I learned a little bit from each one of them, and, and you know, eventually incorporate them into other things that I'm doing. But I think there are a lot of things about Quora that are shaped by my experience working on that music recommendation technology.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's this common thread running throughout your career, which is like teasing more like knowledge out of the data and out of you know disparate disaggregated knowledge. You know whether that was taking the stuff that was on Facebook profiles, putting them into the feed so they were more easily accessible, or taking all this data about what you listen to to find out rec- what you should recommend to people next. And now you guys have been doing that with Quora, and that's pretty exciting to see how big that's gotten now at 300 million users. But Adam, I want to ask a little bit about what's going on with with the world of knowledge sharing now. You know, Cora has rapidly evolved, constantly sort of driving towards more stuff for creators, more easier ways to access and find knowledge. And yet, I feel like Wikipedia hasn't really changed that much in the last ten years. You know, what is your your vision or what how, what's your take on Wikipedia? How do you think that that might actually have opportunities to improve? Uh, and maybe how what have you guys ever considered even like maybe a collaboration or partnership between you guys two? because you're the sort of objective and subjective sides of knowledge on the internet.
1: I think that Wikipedia it's it really suffers from the the fact that it's a, a nonprofit and so that has really limited the amount they can invest in in their product or product development organization. Despite that, I think they've done incredibly well. I like it's a, you know it's a great resource and and it continues to you know to stay up to date. but I think, the The pace the internet is changing and the pace the the world is evolving, there's a need to just constantly change the product that that you're running, and that's it, difficult to do as a nonprofit. As far as partnerships, we have a lot of core answers We'll link to we Wikipedia articles, and Wikipedia articles will sometimes cite core answers. but we don't have any kind of like formalized partnership beyond that. I I think we're, you know, we have a really good coexistence. They play their role with, like you said, with objective knowledge and we're, you know, we're better for subjective knowledge or like long tail knowledge topics that wouldn't justify the existence of a whole Wikipedia article. Anyone wants to share something and doesn't want to have to fight with admins and hundreds of rules that you need to comply with, um, which which those rules are very important for the Wikipedia process to work so that you can get these consistent articles created. But yeah, we, we, you know, we, we occupy this neighboring space on, on the internet and, and we're, we're happy with, with that relationship.
0: I'm constantly fascinated with the different ways that knowledge can be curated and sort of bubbled up and surfaced on the internet. You have all these different methods. You know, there's the kind of Quora and Reddit method of upvotes and downvotes. You have Wikipedia's method where they have all these different editors behind the scenes kind of like jostling and jockeying for position to make sure that every piece of information on there is kind of vetted by a huge community. You have things like Imgur, uh, which is an incredible sort of meme and content sharing site where what they do is, you know, every piece of content gets submitted into this giant user submitted pile and the best stuff gets upvoted and it goes into sort of another river and gets one appearance there. And the best stuff from there gets upvoted again and then gets one trip down this like homepage river. And it's really impressive because, you know, the most casual users just stay on the homepage, uh, but the most hardcore users that have like burned through all the content, they're in the user submitted pile kind of like doing the dirty work, digging out the best content, being you know exposed to a lot of like, insanity uh, and maybe pretty like ridiculous and filthy and, and unpleasing content uh, it's doing this incredible service for everybody else out there on the internet. I, I would love to hear a little bit about how you built Core's uh, uh, curational method uh, around upvotes and downvotes and how does that work do you think that that's the best approach? And, and what's the sort of best approach for bubbling up knowledge? Because I always remember in the early days of Quora, hearing about like upvote pods where people would say, oh, like if everybody I know, if all my friends upvote this answer on Quora, it will become the default answer. And then since it's at the top of the screen, it's the most likely to get more upvotes and kind of get canonized and in, institutionalized inst- into that spot. So how have you dealt with problems like uh, around curation and making sure that nobody can kind of game the system or you know, brute force an answer to the top of a pile, which doesn't really deserve that spot?
1: So my view is that none of these systems are perfect. None of these signals you can get are, are perfect. So upvotes, for example, are a decent indicator of quality when they're coming from someone who knows what they're talking about on the topic. But there are upvote rings, there's there's tendencies for people to upvote content that's just funny because it's funny, not because it's it's actually the best. And on the other hand, you can have rules getting enforced by moderators. The moderators are imperfect as well. They will sometimes just shut down people that they don't like, not, not because they're actually violating the rules. Another system that's not always as visible is machine learning. So There are these systems that can just automatically look at content and guess at how good it is or or whether it's relevant. And because all these systems are imperfect, at Quora, we end up just using a mix of all of them. And we try to be pragmatic about making them work together. So we'll have rules that we enforce with moderation. We'll use upvotes and we'll use machine learning. And these all kind of feed off each other. The machine learning can get more data to train from based on the upvotes. We'll we'll look at cases that the machine learning just can't handle and set specific rules that cover those cases. And we're just constantly evolving and, and adapting the system over time based on what we observe from what's going on in the user base. It's not a perfect process. At different times, certain things will get a little bit out of control or, or we'll have an issue with a certain kind of Content and then we'll need to patch things up and make make maybe make the machine learning better, um, make the signal from users a little bit cleaner, set a new rule to to use for moderation. But we try to basically just be pragmatic and and focus on what's going to create the the best quality outcome for the whole system.
0: Have you ever had any kind of? Funny problems with that engineering side. Think times where you know blatantly wrong answers got voted to the top, or you know other kind of weird uh, outcomes of you know having these giant systems and this enormous community. Uh, we'd love to just hear like yeah. I think every every app inadvertently like screws something up. I remember in the early days of like Facebook's newsfeed, they were doing some experiments, and one time it basically just like I think it was like it only showed posts about basketball. Like all it was was just basketball posts everywhere because they had messed up some lever and. The the algorithm. Uh, we'd love to hear your experience with stuff like that at Cora.
1: We're constantly having things like that. Uh, we, one thing that's I've seen a few times is uh, content about psychopaths. There's a certain certain people like just I don't know. They click on that content a lot more than anything else, and they spend a lot of time reading it. And but they actually don't like it. They don't want to to mostly see content about that or other psych disorders and. That's something that we've had to address specifically.
0: That seems like one of those, uh, when I was talking about that impulse content, like where sometimes there's something that you don't want, like you actually don't care about it, but you're almost like morbidly curious and you just have to go down the rabbit hole. Like you can't stand to just not know the end of the story of like, how many people did they actually kill? Or just some of the horrible things that you probably don't really want lurking around your brain. But there's just this weird lizard brain part of us that we've evolved with where we, we're we curious about that kind of knowledge. It's probably comes from a place of, of survival. It's like, oh, if you know information about things that could potentially be dangerous or just sort of outliers of the human condition, you might be able to better protect yourself. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I see this all the time with like TikTok. You see these like story times or like some car that gets trapped in like a flood. And you're like, I just got to sit here and watch until this like car gets washed off the cliff, even though I know it's not going to teach me anything and that it's not actually good for me. And so, yeah. Do you, do you see that a lot? And, like, how do you think about uh balancing free will and like what people seem to show that they want with like how do you uh with real satisfaction and what makes them leave feeling good and wanting to come back to Cora
1: our goal is to make people feel good and want to come back and and so we see these things as problems and and we try to reduce them when they happen I don't really see it as a fundamental tension between like free will and giving people you know what what they what they truly want I I think we want to just give people what's actually good for them and, and what they want. And that tends to be the same thing that is what is going to make them come back to Cora in the future. So I think our, our interests are pretty aligned with everyone's.
0: All right. So I want to get into talking a little bit more about the creator economy. It's one of our favorite topics here on Press Club. We've had shows with the CEOs of Patreon and Substack and a bunch of other great uh, creator economy leaders. If that's something you're interested, check out Press Club on your favorite podcast app. We've got incredible interviews with the CEOs of these companies. But let's talk about Quora and the creator economy. You guys just made this big launch today where you opened a bunch of new monetization methods for creators on Quora. People can now start their own exclusive Quora space where they can sort of paywall some of their content. They can also opt into having an ad revenue share on content within that kind of space, but that's openly available. People don't have to pay, but they still can earn some money off of it. Or they can contribute content to Quora Plus where people pay one overarching solution and get access to, a you know, uh, great content from a bunch of different creators, and one of the things I thought was most exciting about it is how you allow people to pick uh, what content of theirs gets paywalled. But maybe you could just tell me about how do you think of the, the creator economy and the future of knowledge bases intersecting, and then maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that manifests in Cora's new launch.
1: You know, I guess just to, to first give some context, we've always been an ad-supported product, and and ads, I think ads work pretty well for us. They're, you know, they've been able to fund the development of Our platform and and as a business they they've gotten us on track to be cash flow positive but in most cases the the economics of the ad market just aren't enough to support um to support creators and so meanwhile you see like the internet evolving and consumers have become increasingly willing to pay for for access to content and then these payments turns out that as a creator if you can get a thousand people to, to pay you ten dollars a month, that's a that's a really good funding source that that you can live off of. So I I think that's that's an incredible development for the world and for the the economy. And we want to make sure that Cora, as again, as as I mentioned earlier, like as the world is adapting, we want to make sure that that we adapt as as a platform. And we have a bunch of strengths. As a platform that um, that we just built up historically, one is that we can we're we're good at predicting which people are going to be interested in in reading a given creator's content. And I have a view that there's a very big market of these potential creators who are really talented and have a lot of great knowledge to share. And I, I think it's great knowledge that other people would be willing to pay for, but they don't have the kind of reputation or marketing skills or marketing capacity that would be needed to actually go out and, and find those people who would want to pay for their content. So we we are good at that. And so we're trying to set up a, an ecosystem where creators can come and share their knowledge. And, and if it's really good and it's the kind of knowledge that other people would want to pay to access, then we can go and, and find those people for them. We can give them this distribution. And this should enable this this whole bigger class of creators to exist on the internet.
0: I love that idea that you guys are actually helping people to find those fans rather than making them do all the work. Because I think if that's, that's how it really works on a lot of parts of the internet. Like, yes, there are algorithms that can recommend your content to people, but they're not really trying to drive towards subscriptions and, or, or actually people paying. And that's going to be really tough because yeah, like you said, if you're already a celebrity for some reason, if you've got a ton of social followers, then yeah, you could promote your Patreon. You could promote your YouTube or, uh, or your Substack. But if you're somebody who just has great knowledge to share but hasn't built up that public profile yet, it's really difficult actually building up a, a large audience. And one of the things I thought was so cool, the coolest part about this launch that Cora made today, is that you guys actually have this algorithm that can dynamically help decide what content you should put behind the paywall. It can both like recommend to you what content should permanently live behind a paywall, or you can just dynamically decide like, hey, this person is really unlikely to pay, best to just show them your content for free, or hey, this person actually might pay pay for your content, so we're going to dynamically show them a, pay- a paywall, which is very different than almost like everywhere else on the internet works, where it's kind of just like paywall is on or off. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that algorithm and how that's different from what else you've seen uh, in the market for helping creators.
1: As far as I understand it, on basically every other platform that where creators are are able to money through subscriptions, creators have this kind of binary choice with with each piece of content, either the paywall's on or the paywall's off. and a simple choice for the creator but often they're not actually in a in the best position to to make the choice well and even when they do make it it's very inefficient because the vast majority of people who run into these paywalls don't actually pay for them so then they don't end up seeing the content but the content already was created the creator already sunk the cost to create the content and so they might as well show it to everyone who wouldn't have been willing to pay so what's very important is that that the people who were willing to pay, that they end up paying. So I think that probably in, in something like 90% of the cases where someone on the internet today is running into a paywall, it would actually be possible to not show that paywall. And for the, the creator on the other side to make just as much money. So you can think about this as like, maybe it's people in countries with much lower GDP per capita, the paywall doesn't get shown as often for them maybe it's people who are just like not that interested in in this topic in general the paywall shouldn't show for them maybe over time after content is created we learn that hey this is a really great answer that you wrote and this should be limited to only paying subscribers but most of your other content it's more it has more like mass appeal And it's very important for building up your reputation and getting you more followers who maybe down the line will pay but it's not actually efficient to charge for it right now and so the other platforms are putting creators in this position of having to guess at what the right strategy is for for what to paywall and what to make free and we just think this is something that software can do a lot better than than a, a typical creator Just to be clear, though, we do give creators full control. So if anything that they want to publish and just make free to the world, that's totally fine. We will respect that choice. Anything that they want to say is paid only only for their loyal subscribers we will respect that choice as well. But we think that in the vast majority of cases, when creators give us this control over when to show the paywall, we will be able to do a lot better, both in terms of getting the more subscribers and in terms of showing the content for free for for more people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly reminds me of things like Medium, which always pissed me off because it was like, oh, you get this certain number of free articles per month and then you hit the paywall, but it seems totally random and it's like, oh, if I just burned my my like free articles on one thing, then I can't see this piece of information that the person who published it like really meant it to be freely available or something that was like kind of like you know benign and de- wasn't really like designed to help them do business or anything. It was just like some little piece of content out there and they never really meant it to be paywalled but it just got thrown behind the paywall because Medium is just trying to like rack up revenue uh, and and we haven't seen other companies take a more intelligent approach here but this does raise one interesting question to me which is like does that make does it like kind of discriminate against people who have shown willingness to pay like is it that people who pay are just like the internet's going to keep getting more expensive for them because once they pay the, you know, the, the services are going to say oh we know you're willing to pay for some of this stuff and so we're going to show you the paywalls more? And will that eventually incentivize people to like browse in incognito mode or, you know, create new like accounts so they can kind of smurf or like, you know, act like they're not paying customers as usual, just to make sure they don't keep on hitting more and more paywalls. Like, how do you think about avoiding this situation where it just gets, you know, where you, know, the, the more you pay, the more you have to pay. I think we'll
1: have to see how it, pay- it plays out. But I think that it's ultimately not gonna be too hard for any one person to get around the paywall. This isn't about making it impossible. It's more about making it so that for for people who can't afford to pay or wouldn't have been willing to pay, it's easy to get access to the content. I think for a long time, you know, you can, I mean, this is what I do on other paywall sites uh, when I don't have a subscription, I just open an incognito window. And most of the time that will that that will let me through. And I think that's actually fine. Like it's 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 these are sites that I wouldn't have paid for anyway. And I think there's there'll be easy ways to get around our our wall that that do the same thing. Um we we are, at least for now, we're we're charging a flat price to to everyone. And so that limits the amount of price discrimination that can happen. So we're not gonna have something where like, oh, this detected like you seem rich, and so you're going to be charged a price that's ten times higher than than anyone else. Uh, we're not going into that territory. It's just it's really just about whether um, whether we give you free access to the content. But you know, you see this, I, I think, in other industries all have their own forms of this. So you know, at the grocery store, there, there are coupons. And if you go and spend the time to get the coupons from the right places, then you can get these discounts. Um, and, and anyone else could go and get those coupons, but they don't. And and so you could say it's maybe it's it's unfair, but I don't think it's as big of a deal. Restaurants will have like happy hour if you come at the right times, you get discounts and all those things. You know, you you could call them price discrimination, but in practice it's actually just creating a lot of value for everyone. Like the restaurant can exist the restaurant kind of better food in general because of the existence of the happy hour prices even if it means that the people who go later can maybe have to pay more than than the other people
0: i like this because what's I think is so important about the ad-supported free internet is that it's open to everybody. Like there are a lot of places in the world where if you wanted to charge everybody ten dollars a month to use a service, you know a lot of people just aren't going to be able to. And I love that things like Facebook and Google are free for everybody everywhere because I think it would be it would be brutal if there were huge, huge core utilities of the internet that people couldn't access unless they were willing to pay. And instead, what you get is the system where they're kind of subsidized by people in uh. You you know, in more developed nations where there's higher you know, GDP per capita and they're you know they're able to earn more f- through ad views. You know, Facebook, uh, the average revenue per user in the U.S. is much much higher than in a many parts of the world simply because people are willing to spend more on things that they see in ads here. Uh, but we've seen increasingly a lot of the services kind of considering whether they should offer a subscription to maybe be ad-free in certain parts of the world. That way, you know, that it, it can still stay free for everybody, but some people who want a premium experience can pay for that. You know, how do you think about how Cora is approaching this, especially with something as important as knowledge, to make sure that it remains free for everybody? And like would you like to see things like Twitter and Facebook offer paid subscriptions for people who want them uh, to continue to help subsidize people who wouldn't be able to pay in the first place?
1: So first of all, I think it's a great thing for the world that these countries with higher GDP can can subsidize countries with lower GDP. There's, you know, a lot of these products just there's a huge fixed cost in in creating them. And someone needs to pay that. And and I I think it's it's a good thing for for the world that people with more ability to pay can can effectively fund these these services for the rest of the world. In our case, we, you know, we're we're going to continue to have ad revenue and, and we'll share ad revenue to creators when when they turn that on. And I think it's important to have subscriptions and ads working together. That's the pattern you see in in more mature media industries. So like if you go look at the New York Times, you can subscribe to get access to all the content, um, but you can also, uh, don't also show ads to people who, who haven't subscribed and, and even show ads to people who have subscribed in, in a lot of cases. And I think ads and subscriptions can really work together. And I think that in order to get the most knowledge shared in the world we need to be able to generate the most revenue to fund the creation of that content so that we can share as much of it as possible with with creators and i think to do that you want ads and you want subscriptions and you want to be able to you know to make even though you're going to be making more money off the ad sales in the us than than you are in in other countries that's, um, that, that's a good thing for, for the, the ecosystem as a whole. And, and that's what's going to result in creators making the most money and in the most funding for more of this knowledge getting shared.
0: Have you guys considered more of like a microtransaction model? That's something that seems to be coming back into you know potential vogue now that we have things like cryptocurrencies, which could drive you know very low transaction fee transfers on small amounts of money, unlike you know credit card processing fees, which cost a lot if you're talking about just a few cents. And you know we've seen a bunch of startups try and fail in this in the journalism world, where they're saying, oh, like let me just uh, let let you pay a few cents per article you read rather than paying these big like ten dollar a month subscriptions. But what I think we keep on seeing over and over is that like a lot of services and similar to a lot of creators, they kind of depend on the breakage or of people who subscribe and pay, but don't actually necessarily like get their full worth of the content. Uh, you know, it's not just people that like desperately you know, use their, the content or look follow them every single day, but, you know, people who maybe pay and then only read a few articles a month. Whereas if they only paid like 10 cents an article, they wouldn't make nearly, those publications wouldn't make nearly as much money. Um, have you guys like, thought about that kind of microtransaction model? And and why do you think that maybe hasn't worked on the internet to date?
1: I'm not an expert on that, but I think that the real cost with this model where you have to pay for each article, just a few cents, I think the much bigger cost is the, the psychological cost to make a decision about whether to pay. And it's not easy to quantify, but I think it's more than a few cents of cost to you to stop have to stop and think about whether you want to pay and and you know and then also the the other stuff associated with that like the need to type in your credit card number if it's your first time and so i think that's that's what's in the way of that the great thing about subscription models is that people subscribe once and then you know until they decide to unsubscribe the payments just happen without the need for people to to like actively like get stopped and and have to make a decision every minute that they're that they're reading through content
0: I love that idea And I think it's totally true You know I would much rather pay You know uh, A monthly subscription Especially for things like music Than every time I wanted to listen to a song To pay a, a small amount Even if I ended up Paying less per month Just because it, Like there's so much Mental overhead Like you said And like we're, we're We're naturally stingy People still operate Out of like a scarcity mindset And are, are going to say like Oh like Is it worth these few cents And like even in just That time it takes To make that decision It's probably worth more Than that th- those few cents uh, But one of those things that this does bring up for me is the idea of subscription fatigue. We talked about this with some, you know, of the top newsletter writers, uh, like Ben Thompson from Stratechery and Chris Best, the Substack CEO. And, you know, they really believe that there's not going to be subscription fatigue, that everyone's just going to find their own, like the creators that they do want to monetize or they do want to pay for uh, across their different mediums. But I do start to wonder when like every single social network has, you know, paywalled options for creators, you know, are we really going to hit some level of fatigue? and how do you think about how people, uh, you know, budget for this? Like, it, you know, we, we always thought of like, oh, we're going to drop the, we're going to cut the, ca- the cord for cable. And instead of paying like $50 a month, we just pay like $10 a month for something like Netflix. But then all of a sudden you've got Hulu and HBO Max and Disney Plus, and now you're paying more than you paid for your cable subscription. And sometimes I feel like I, you know, I look at some of the subscriptions that I pay for and I'm like, well, I really appreciate these people. I really want to help fund what they're doing. But all of a sudden I'm like paying way more for like a few, Few substacks than I pay for almost anything else in my life, and so how do you think about subscription fatigue uh, or you know that kind of information overload amongst creators? And how are you going to help make sure that creators can still make an, a, a living on Quora, even if there's maybe a smaller audience that care about their their knowledge-based content than maybe somebody's you know uh, viral videos or uh, you know or, or their OnlyFans content?
1: So in general, I don't believe in the idea of subscription fatigue. Obviously, people have limited total funds to spend on all of this but these prices in the grand scheme of things for most people are pretty low so subscribing to someone's content for a few dollars a month it's like the price of a cup of coffee that's not a big deal for a large number of people i think that there's going to be a lot of subscription services i do think this is going to drive some amount of bundling so one of the reasons we have Quora Plus, which is this one bundle that writers on Quora can opt into. And then anyone who subscribes to that, it'll be $5 a month. Anyone who subscribes to that will just get access to 100% of the, the content from any of the creators who opt in. One of the reasons for that is that we want to take pressure off the creators from having to each build up their own subscriber base. And that, that's a process that can take a very long time. And it's a process that if you want to go on vacation for a month, You'll probably lose a lot of subscribers because they you know they they paid you that month and and they got nothing. And so I, I do think there's going to be some pressure toward some amount of bundling. But I think there will be a large number of subscriptions that that everyone is or not everyone, but that that a lot of say at least a lot of average American consumers are, paying for
0: i appreciate you diving deep on the economics of the internet with me and yeah i I do love the idea that you know rather than every creator having to like you know fight and and battle to do their own to get their own subscriber base and you know have to constantly be kind of like self-promoting the fact that they can just sort of contribute their content to a bigger bundle get paid out proportionally based on how much people who subscribe actually consume their content and just sort of go back to making what they love i think that that really matters uh so I'm about to recap some uh, some of the highlights from today's talk. You, know, you talked about how Yahoo Answers started super high quality, but it just wasn't scalable, and there was never uh, that you never really saw them as a competitor. And because they didn't build systems to keep quality in check, things kind of went to hell quickly, and it became this kind of big joke on the internet. Um, and that you know it will all, everything ends up sort of devolving into garbage if you don't create the right incentives. You know if you don't reward people for their knowledge, they're not going to be in, motivated to contribute the best stuff and the most intelligent people, or the people with the most expertise, who are often the busiest, aren't gonna take the time, and instead you're gonna get answers from people who probably aren't really qualified. Um, and so what you really need is a prompt or some kind of stimulation to get this knowledge out of people's heads. There's so much information trapped in people's minds that's not on Wikipedia, it's subjective, uh, but if you nobody ever asks them the right question, they're never gonna share it. And I love that you guys have built out this like 100 or 200 dimension kind of imaginary space on which you map every piece of content and score it so that you can figure out who to actually share it with, and that means that whether you're in, uh, you're on Core to learn about, you know, uh, cancer treatment, or you know how you should interact with the police, or whether you could actually become Batman, you know, Cora can learn what types of content you want and, and actually show it to you, similar to what you know the algorithm algorithms and and recommendation algorithms that we're seeing on things like TikTok and Spotify. Um, And your own journey here has always kind of been about teasing out those recommendations from the data. You know, your your older brother taught you QBasic and you created games. That is a refrain we hear from so many guests on Press Club. If you want your kids to be smarter or actually become incredible entrepreneurs, you should probably get them making their own games. It seems to be the path for a lot of the top uh, founders in the world. Um, But you you were building the pre-social network tools like ways to upload your buddy list and look at other people's buddy lists. And, you know, when that suddenly got 200,000 downloads in a week, you realize the real connective power of the of the Internet. And that led you to go and become the first CTO of Facebook um, and working on the first version of Newsfeed, which similarly was teasing all of this information that was trapped on people's profiles and putting it out there in some place that was a little bit more easy to access. Um, but when it comes to the world of knowledge sharing, we've seen too much stagnation, especially in the case of Wikipedia, which really, you said, suffers from the fact that it's a non nonprofit and it limits its ability to invest in product development and given how fast the internet is changing and the world is evolving you need that that uh, funding and so I think that you know core could have easily been a nonprofit itself it's certainly an altruistic and sort of benefit for the world but the fact that you guys have raised in the hundreds of millions has made that meant that you can build the best product for your 300 million users and uh, and we talked a little bit about curational systems and that you know upvotes that you guys use are a decent indicator but you really have to merge them with both moderators who can be biased at times, and algorithms that can tease out trends that no individual could act honestly see by themselves. Um, and by mixing those all together, you can find the content that people really love and kind of negate some of our, uh, our impulses that aren't always in our best interest. You know, we, we divide content into, you know, the, the interest content that we actually like to consume, the aspirational content we wish we consumed, and the impulse content that we kind of are just morbidly curious about. And you mentioned that people love browsing Quora for information on psychopaths, even though it doesn't really make them better. It's kind of like almost clickbait. And so trying to learn how to negate that through these recommendation algorithms, I think, is really important to also to making sure we don't spread too much misinformation or stuff that just makes people feel bad. And then we talked a little bit about the economics of the the current internet for creators that, you know, ads aren't usually enough to support everybody, you know, creators to really be able to earn enough money unless they're at enormous scale, need people to subscribe and pay them directly. And you guys have just launched these incredible new uh, features where your people can either create an exclusive space to sell their uh, Quora content, they can opt into being part of Quora Plus, where for $5 a month, you get access to all these different creators' content, or they can just sit back and take a revenue share from the advertisements that are shown on their, their pieces of content. And I love that you guys also built this algorithm, which helps that automatically actually decides what content should go behind the paywall and even who to show that paywall to. And I think that that's something we're going to see increasingly of the internet. If there there's you know, one thing to take away from today's talk. I I think it's how interesting it is that you know most of the uh, paywalls on the internet get shown to people who are never going to pay and because of that you're missing out on everything else those users could bring that content like just you know the general spread of knowledge but also they could become you know fans of that author over time and eventually want to pay and subscribe to them or they could share that content and help it reach somebody who does want to pay and I think we're going to see that increasingly over time that you know showing the same paywall to everybody in the world doesn't really make sense and I love that you guys are thinking about you know which countries are people more likely to pay on? Are you actually already paying for content in a similar topic? Do you browse this kind of stuff a lot? Or is this a, a one-off, kind of off the beaten track for you? And using that information to figure out who should get paid uh, and who should who should pay and who shouldn't. And hopefully this doesn't lead to an internet where people who do pay just have to get hit with paywalls over and over and over again. And we're not all just sort of ducking into our incognito modes. But you know there's a huge psychological cost to deciding to pay for something. It's why microtransactions for content hasn't really succeeded so far on the internet and the beauty of these subscription models uh, or ad revenue models is that you either make a decision once or you don't even make the decision but people still make money and I think you know we get a we hear a lot of bashing about ads on the internet a lot of people using ad blockers out there but honestly this is the kind of stuff that makes the internet free for everybody in the world and so if you're somebody who can actually earn a service money just by seeing ads you're helping them provide that same service to people who could never afford to pay and whose views just wouldn't matter as much to advertisers. And so you're doing your part to keeping the consumer internet alive and you are the lifeblood of it because you are willing to help subsidize your neighbors around the world. And so I hope that everyone thinks about, you know, when when we think about the future of monetization, the future of the creator economy on the internet, it shouldn't necessarily be everybody is forced to pay. It should be more dynamic and more almost income adjusted where the people who can afford to pay can and help them subsidize the rest of the world. And so with that, Adam, I just want to give you the final word. Is there something that you Hope to see happen next in the knowledge base uh, universe, or the way that people share information, and in, in the future, you know, what are we still missing? If you're the the subjective part of knowledge, if Wikipedia is the objective part, what are we still missing in the knowledge based universe? I think
1: the biggest difference between where we are now and and where the world can get to is about scale, about the amount of content, as opposed to a kind of qualitative change in in how it's shared. So I think you could get to 10, 100 times as much knowledge available to everyone as, as where we are today. And my hope is that these products for creators to be able to make real money as they're sharing knowledge can, can enable this, this pretty big professional class of people who can do that full time. So I think it'll be more about scale than about a, a particular qualitative change. But I think that they're just saying um, quantity has a quality all its own. I think with that increase in, in scale of really high quality knowledge available for everyone, it's gonna to feel totally different from from where we are today.
0: Well, I'm personally deeply thankful that you left Facebook to go and start Quora to create this knowledge base that's available to everyone in the internet. And I'm excited to see how you can un you know unlock all of this information trapped in our brains by just doing the one thing, which is serving them the right question. Thank you so much to Adam D'Angelo, CEO and founder of Quora. Thank you for coming to Press Club. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you, Josh.